I shouldn't, you know, hold white people today, um, you know, sort of ransom or say, you know, you're responsible for the atrocities of, uh, of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, the, this, the burden of carrying that kind of resentment destroys you as a person. And that's unfortunately, ideologically, you know, where, where I was and where many of the people that I affiliated with and associated with in that season of my life. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Joel Brown, a GP who says he used to be a power-hungry racerholic. Coming to the UK as a young black man, Joel says he awakened into an identity that was consumed by his race. The problem is if you view history with an ideological lens where you sort of, uh, you know, you, you have this way of interpreting events, in a, you know, according to that, that ideological agenda and you, you interpret history in, in a certain way and it just, it, it makes you vulnerable to being swept, swept into, um, you know, I think extremism. He says movements such as Black Lives Matter appeal to those who've experienced hardships but can leave people feeling jaded about the world and destroy their relationships with others. I, I have no problem in embracing my, my heritage, being of Jamaican, you know, birth, uh, Afro-Caribbean descent, and uh, embracing my the skin I'm in. But the the deeper sense of my identity, you know, um, does not, you know, rest in in my skin colour. It does not rest in the the cultural assumptions about what my skin colour should it says I should uh, prioritise, or what issues or causes I should align with, or what, or even politically, what I should align with. There is this deeper sense of acceptance of who I am at a, at a much more fundamental level. I'm Lee Hall. This is British Thought Leaders. Joel Brown, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you so much for the invitation. So uh, I was hoping you could just give us some background. Uh, who is Joel Brown and how you kind of went through life to get to the point where we are now? Yeah, of course. So, oh gosh, where do I start? So I'm a medical doctor. Um, I love my work. And, um, but I'm also a husband, a father. Um, I'm of Jamaican heritage. I was born there uh, and I live in the UK. And um, yeah, it's been it's been quite interesting. Just so much we're going to get into in the conversation today. But I mean, effectively, I'm a, I'm a creative. As I said, I'm a professional as well. And I love to talk about the world and and, and you know what are the values that are important to us as a society. And it's been just really interesting, just kind of seeing the world unfold uh, in the last you know, year or two. And I've got got a lot that I've had to say on Twitter about it. But, yeah. So you moved from Jamaica over to the UK when you were nine, was it? Actually, it was a bit later. So I was around 15. Parents moved here from, from Jamaica. My mom was originally born in London. Um, and so for her, it was a bit more of a return to the UK. Uh, so, you know, of course, with her husband, myself, and my two younger siblings. And we went all the way up to the, 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 the sunny part of, it's not very sunny, actually. We went up to Bradford, where I started, uh, did my A-levels, and went on to medical school. And did you notice much of a difference as, as a young black guy in England compared to being in Jamaica? Yeah, so interestingly, when I, when I left Jamaica, um, I think being black was, it was almost like this sort of 
it was a reality that I didn't have to kind of question or or really have to navigate. I mean, everyone around me, or majority of the culture, um, or the people around me rather, and, and even the kind of cultural understanding, um, that there was there was this sense, of course, you're black, and the doctors around you are black, and police officers, the prime minister. So it was just, you know, that there was never any sense of, oh, any particular career options were off the table for me versus others or anything like that. I think when I came to the UK, obviously, I'm now kind of immersed into a, a culture where being black, I'm, I guess I, I sort of felt, uh, okay, I'm a so-called minority, and there was that sense or that feeling or navigating that um, when I first came. And, um, and I think for me, if, if, if I'm honest, I mean, I, 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 can, I could say this, you know, categorically, that I, I didn't experience any, you know, significant hostility. It was, it was more, more or less a kind of a cultural um, sort of experience of, okay, well, navigating what it means to be you know, British, how do, you know, Brits talk about different, different things, what, when, when a British person uh, exp you know, expresses something to you, how to kind of navigate the, these cues and figure out how to have conversations. And, but I mean, I was fairly ambitious uh, with parents that instilled really strong values about education and, and, and just about diligence as, as, a young, as a young child. So I came in to, you know, to, to my, you know, focus on my education really and wanted to, you know, aspire to, to become a doctor. So really kind of focused in on that. So you, on your substack, you said you became a, a power-hungry racer-holic. Mm. I wonder if you could tell us about your journey to kind of get to that point and what that, what that meant. Yeah. So, you know, a power-hungry racerholic. I remember when I, the, the words came to me, you know, to describe, you know, what, what really happened in the last few years. And it would be useful for me to kind of take you back. So when I first came to the, to the UK, uh, particularly Bradford as a city, was, um, there, was, there were quite a bit of racial tensions, but it was primarily the sort of the South Asian population and, and the white population in Bradford. As it was on the sort of heels of some race riots at, at that time and back in 2001 or so when I first came to the UK. And, and I, so I, I remember sort of like navigating that and kind of f feeling like a bit of a spectator as I, I just didn't quite understand why it was so, so tense. But as I said, I didn't particularly feel um, that it was about me and I just kind of got on, um, got on with life. But I, I found that as I got through university, I became more and more sort of race conscious or race aware as the years went by, as I started to kind of become more focused on, I think my politics started to evolve slowly, where I sort of started to think about, you know, what happened in the in the slave trade and the consequence of kind of, um, you know, looking at different groups in society, you know, so black people in society, what experiences are they having? What level of uh, social mobility? How well are they doing? Are, are there sort of um, issues that they face uh, as a result of the legacy of sort of historic, uh, you know, sort of challenges that they've faced? And, and so, so I started to become more, more aware. And then I also had some internal identity issues because I, th I started to feel like, okay, well, there is this question about what does it mean to be um, a, of course, a man, a young man, and what does it mean to be a black man in, in, in this society? And, and so I, I became more and more focused on this idea um, that my blackness needed to be more um, explicit. I needed to somehow, uh, there was this awakening into this identity. And I think when I talk about becoming a raceaholic, 
uh, as, as a sort of ex a, a turn of phrase or an expression, I think I became quite addicted to this idea of of, uh, of, of fitting in or, or sort of, I guess, my, my race determining my outlook in life. So it's like I, I, to be a black person means you, you need to face and view the world in a, in a certain way. You need to think about, um, you know, what, for instance, the, the, the problems that black people face as a collective. You know, I need to think about this as something that we're in a struggle together, that, that sort of thing. And, 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 and white people, for instance, I, I started to adopt this idea that, you know, that they perhaps, um, you know, maybe weren't aware of, of history as much as, as I seem to be, um, you know, becoming more awakened into, and that they, they somehow need to be taught about the legacy of, of, of this, the disadvantages that black people faced. And as a result of this, I think that there was a sense in which I just became consumed by by race and the and, and and hyper aware of what race should mean as it relates to how one navigates the world, how one interacts with with each other, uh, and and it just it it was it just continued to snowball, and there's so much more I could get into in terms of the the effect of that. Was this the time when when Black Lives Matter became really popular in society? So that's useful for for me to to acknowledge. So. I had my racial awareness journey developing before the full-blown explosion of Black Lives Matter around George Floyd's, um, you know, death. So, so just to go back a little bit. So when I went off to university and um, you know, uh, you know, kind of went in in there with not not a massive amount of you know racial racial awareness. Um, of course, uh, in my year group, there was you know I was a, a handful of um, a handful of sort of black students, um, but we you know just got on with university life and and, and you know didn't feel I particularly faced any you know sort of as I said hardships as a result of my my race. Medical school was tough, but pursued that and and um but it wasn't it wasn't until sort of um you know sort of later uh, having you know I, I started to go through a process of uh, a faith crisis as it were and i think that it was the faith crisis because i grew up in a christian home grew up in a fairly conservative uh, christian home and and i started to have these these sort of issues and questions about you know, my faith, how do I know my faith is true? How do I know the Bible is true or reliable? Um, and, and so th these kind of deep questions started to undermine, um, you know, the, the confidence that I, that I had in my faith. And, and so around the, uh, about that time was when I became more aware of more cynical views of the influence of Christianity um, around the time of the trans Atlantic slave trade, and there was a sense in which I should feel like um, it, any association with Christianity is a tacit sort of approval of of the kind of the machinations of the colonial empire at that time, and that somehow uh, I wanted to distance myself from, from 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 Christianity and so what I viewed to be its sort of imperialist kind of roots, and so that was the, the kind of ideology that started to to you know to overcome me and and so i remember you know that there was a point in which i i found myself just you know abandoning the faith entirely i just was, I was consumed by anger and frustration about almost like i felt like i was duped into a, into a religious system into into a way of being in the world where i was in you know in total denial of the fact that 
you know, history had, had conspired against me because mm. because I'm black and, and, and my people, we, we should be um, frustrated and angry. And that's the way that I was I was consumed. So I, you know, abandoned religion, was, you know, considered myself a kind of fairly militant atheist, actually. I was quite anti-religion for this season. So this was prior to Black Lives Matter. And then, of course, Black Lives Matter um, and, you know, and George Floyd's death uh, brought things on to um, just just brought such an international awareness of this issue, and and so I, I certainly um, became even more um, vocal. At this time, I was using more social media, uh, Facebook rather, um, to to sort of chastise those around me, including friends and family who are you know either gone to church with or you know now consider them part of you know the the system of conspiring against um, you know the, the, the justice that you know black people deserve and these, these issues it's it's a shame that it has taken long this long for society to wake up to this reality and and, and that's the sort of place that I was in and um, as I said it eroded relationships very very uh, terribly um, and I just became a person that. Uh, was just not not very pleasant to be around, um, and as I said, it's just hypercritical and very jaded about the world. How did your friends and family take this this change in you? It was a struggle. Um, like I mentioned, uh, you know, I married um, my wife, who you know has took took you know it was really hard for her, and she remained you know um, loving towards me and supportive towards me, but I was. You know, so negative about uh, about her faith. Uh, my parents, who you know, uh, are so loving and supportive of me again, pushed people away who who loved me. Um, and and I've and I've spoken about this uh, a lot on Twitter that I've had to go through a process of, you know, um, of real grief about this and penitence and you know trying to. You know, it's not been easy, of course, for those people who endured that kind of uh, hostility from me, but also for me to kind of reconcile that, and and um, and of course, I've had to go back to you know many of these people that I feel like I've I've, I've sort of you know had been hurt by some of how I responded in that in that season of my life, and it, and that it certainly wasn't easy, and particularly friends, um, white friends who. Uh, couldn't understand fully what was going on with me because it felt like as if I'd, I'd sort of adopted this view of the world in which they could be nothing but but enemies, despite the fact that we had beautiful relationships, you know, pr prior to this. It's like the lens through which I now viewed the world and viewed relationships uh, with these people was so distorted that I couldn't distinguish my own ideological presumptions from reality anymore. When something to the scale of Black Lives Matter happens, do you think it's easy to kind of get swept along with the, the, the current of all of that? Absolutely. I think there was something very visceral about what happened um, even if we go back to to George Floyd, and I mean we can we can have a discussion about what happened, and of course the tragedy of of the loss of his life, and and the visceral way in which it happened, I think resonated with a lot a lot of people, and rightly so. I think we can have a discussion to say that you know that got you know there could have been a better way that that situation could have been handled, but the the way in which 
um, the narrative around that story was sort was was spun into into sort of being used as this is the this is the representation of or the vicarious sort of represent, representation of the black experience that that we are all baptized into into some kind of uh, expression of of being asphyxiated almost suffocated by. Um, by, by systems of oppression that we have no control over. Um, and then Black Lives Matter as a response to that to say, okay, we need to, as a society, um, you know, affirm that, or at least make the claim that black lives don't matter in society because of the fact that instances of, of these, ty these types of events happen uh, and, and society need to rally around this this banner of you know this idea of black lives matter um as, as a means to say look you know these injustices we, we have to be able to you know directly um accuse society as as being the sort of toxic sort of cesspool of racism where black people can't thrive at all um and and that it there is an appeal to that that a lot of people especially those who may be feeling like they've not got an outlet for, for purpose in their lives. They've lost um, the sense of um, wonder and beauty about the complex world we live in. It's not a perfect world at all. And I think for me, because I was already quite jaded and bitter about the world, having described what I went through with my faith and a, and a sense of, as I said, history, we know that history is complicated. The problem is if you view history with an ideological lens where you sort of, uh, you know, you, you have this way of interpreting events, in a, you know, according to that, that ideological agenda and you, you interpret history in, in a certain way and it just, it, it makes you vulnerable to being swept, swept into, um, you know, I think extremism. I think that um, Black Lives Matter as a as an idea originally in the minds of many people who heard it they were like yeah of course the statement is not particularly controversial um but i think what became clearer um to many and i actually rec you know remember getting the pushback when when i you know for instance when you say black lives matter and and then oftentimes someone would say yeah, but all lives matter. But then there was this, this this debate about, well, you know, is is that is it wrong to say that? Is somehow saying all lives matter um, on undermining the truth of, of of Black Lives Matter? And then and then there was this. I think it became clear that the that the phrase, while it might have in the minds of many, but it's just a simple kind of rallying call for saying, okay, is there a, an issue around uh, police brutality that seems to be, um, you know more predominant in terms of the, at least in the American context, focused on, you know, sort of, you know, a black person experiencing that more often than, you know, than, than a white person. And, and is it important to have a conversation about racial disparities and experience of, of, uh, you know, of, of injustices? And, and, and that in itself not being unreasonable, but the way in which Black Lives Matter, I think, as a, as a rallying call, it sort of became a way to, um, you know, sort of, I think I think it caused a breakdown in social cohesion between different different races of people, um, and people felt like uh, that 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 phrase was was used to 
um, it was it was politicized in a, in a way that um, was was different from just whatever the moral considerations might have been, and it, and it, and, it um, and yes, so your question about did it cause a lot of people to to get uh, swept into um, to a particular way of viewing the world is the world, you know, just obscenely racist where black people are oppressed to the degree that they have to be worried that their, you know, their livelihood, they're, they're, they won't have the same freedoms as, as people who are, are white. And, and that's, that's just not the world that we largely live in in, in in the West. Yes, no one is denying that racism exists in different ways and people have experiences where they, you know, that they can sort of attest to that. Um, but it's, it's, again, it's, it's the way in which that idea was used to, to frame a narrative about the world that we live in that is, as I said, is just insufferably racist. And then why people are everywhere around you are complicit in that. Um, and I think that that was the hysteria that um, the Black Lives Matter movement um, and ideology, I think, helped to, um, to cultivate, unfortunately. Um, and as I said, you know, I went to a few of the rallying marches. I remember holding my youngest child, you know, um, she had only been maybe three, four months and carrying her along to one of the marches in Leeds um, around, that, around that time post-George post, post George Floyd's uh, death. And again, as I said, my, my intentions was just the solidarity of the, of the moment. But I think there were lots of people there who, who also went with good intentions, but then subsequently the mentality, I think, became quite corrosive in terms of how we, you know, interacted with other people who may have had slightly different views and people who were just labeled as racist for just disagreeing. If someone didn't put a black square up on their social media or didn't put Black Lives Matter, they're automatically part of the system that are trying to, um, you know, oppress uh, and keep black people oppressed. That, that, that sort of, uh, that's a kind of unfortunate um, hysteria that I think a lot of a lot of young people particularly got swept into. And so, what was it for you that you know, encouraged you to kind of change your thinking somewhat? And I think, in terms of this question about how and why did I change, you know, it's oftentimes I've been asked it in interviews, and and I think the answer sometimes varies because it's it's not it's not been easy to just pinpoint. Uh, you know, a precise moment where the you know the, the light bulb switched on. I think for me, there was a process. There, there was a process of self-examination. There was a process of, of, of therapy. I had to um, acknowledge, I, I, was, I was quite depressed at the time. And I think when, when you're depressed and you view the world in a really jaded way and you feel this uh, sort of a, a level of resentment, every, Everything you, you so there is a sense in of confirmation bias that you 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 look for the things that consolidates uh, the sort of world that that you know that you kind of almost want to believe is is you know so if you want to believe the world is utterly racist and totally um, you know oppressive you will you will look for the things that confirms that you know, that reality and I think that it started to become clear to me even with the way that I interacted with my own children, I could only see them as almost like objects that I needed to save from this crushingly you know, racist world. And, uh, I, it's, and it was the, 
the loss of um, the sense in which I was like, I feel like I just lost that joy in, in, in life and, and these relationships lay, you know, lay in, in ruin as a result of some of how I'd become. Uh, it, those started to awaken a sense of, yeah, this, this real grief that I was, that I just had a, had a life that I just felt was, was just uh, in a sorry, sordid uh, state of disarray. Um, and, and so that, that feeling wouldn't go away and, and, the, and the self-examination and the sort of recognition of what, what was kind of going on in my mind and, and seeking therapy and getting help with that was, was, a, was a part of the journey. There was also a, um, a spiritual part of this journey as well, because having got to that place where, you know, there was this in total rejection of God and rejection of truth and almost seeing, you know, that w we should design and redesign, uh, the, the word that we often use was, you know, dismantle the world, the power structures that be, and whiteness uh, is, this, is this sort of construct that uh, is, is, on, is inherently unfair and white people have the advantage or the privilege of, over the rest of us and so we need to participate in dismantling this system so to make a, a world that's more equitable. And these are sort of the ideas that I, that I you know, that I embraced and, you know, and sort of re realizing again that the, those ideas were, the best way of putting them, I feel like they, they weren't um, true, and and I think they were just an exaggerated way of of um, you know describing, and they missed the mark in so many ways in terms of describing um, the nuanced nature of the challenges that we face in our world, and and creates the sort of generalizations uh, about white or black people uh, that are unhelpful towards uh, the kind of social cohesion that's necessary. Um, you know, in, in our society to move forward. Um, and so for me, kind of recognizing that the state of mind that I was in spiritually, you know, psychologically, um, coming into a place of renewal in, in my faith as a result of going through some of this healing and actually revisiting some of what I thought about history and realized actually I had a very distorted view and I looked at some other facts that corroborated that actually there is a more nuanced way of looking at even Christianity's involvement and, or the church and the you know, church's involvement in, in sort of his historical injustices and actually realizing that you know what I, I my, my faith and the faith of my, my parents my you know, faith in Christ and my grandparents has been a, a real um, you know, just lighthouse for me and actually seeing that, you know, that the restoration of that has been a real crucial part of, of the journey for me of just, you know, coming out of, out of that. And it's, it's been a continued journey of just realigning um, with, with, with truth. It seems you had several battles going on. Yeah. I think one of them is a, a battle for identity. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I just remember coming to the UK and feeling quite proud and excited about the opportunity, you know, to be part of, um, you know, uh, the, the, the nation and to have a chance to get a, a, a great education and to, uh, you know, to join a, a career, um, you know, that, that I felt like I could make do some good in the world. Mm -hmm. And there was a 
there was a boy in the middle of all of that. I was just trying to figure out what is it, you know, who who am I and what am I? What is my purpose? You know, and what you know, why am I here? And I think I I part of this journey for me and where I ended up and how I ended up there. I think there was that there was a fragmentation and a kind of a a loss of that sense of 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 who I was and and I and feeling that I had to find it in you know in in some in some ideology that would that would somehow maybe fully explain you know things that didn't make sense to me you know for instance I remember one of the questions I asked myself is how did I end up with the name the surname brown if I'm of african descent you know I started to then have this kind of reductive way of viewing it well maybe you know, of course, the likelihood my name was inherited from, you know, someone um, who owned a plantation in Jamaica by the name of Brown. Um, and and so I, I remember just feeling at this time, this early part of, uh, of the deconstruction of my worldview and my faith and so on, there was this sense of, it's this wrestling with identity. What does it mean to be who I am? And I think where I've come to now and, and what's so crucial when I talk about this on, on social media is that I, I have no problem in embracing my, my heritage of being of Jamaican you know, birth, uh, Afro-Caribbean descent and uh, embracing my, the skin I'm in. But the, the deeper sense of my identity you know, um, does not you know, rest in, in my skin color. It does not rest in the, the cultural assumptions about what my skin color should says I should uh, prioritize or what issues or causes I should align with or what or even politically what I should align with there is this deeper sense of acceptance of who I am at a, at a much more fundamental level um, you know my faith is absolutely <coughs> core with that excuse me <coughs> you know just understanding my faith in in Christ the heritage that um, that that means to me in terms of my values, in terms of um, my my sort of why the the love I therefore should have towards all people, regardless of their race, regardless of their gender, um, and I shouldn't you know hold white people today um, you know sort of ransom or say you know you're responsible for the atrocities of uh, of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, that this, the burden of carrying that kind of resentment destroys you as a person, and that's unfortunately ideologically, you know, where where I was and where many of the people that I affiliated with and associated with in that season of my life, um, and you know, and I'm just grateful to just be in a place where I feel much more whole rather than feeling like my entire identity is summed up in, you know. Uh, some some political ideology that's that's you know rooted in my quote unquote race. I'm a human being, um, and I'm here to figure that out and uh, how we can figure that out together and love each other and be more honest and open and have discussions about the challenging issues that face our world today. The other battle you had going on is, is a faith battle. I think your your father, your grandfather were quite moral and spiritual people. Yeah. Did that kind of set quite a high bar for you to try and follow? Yeah, and it's interesting because I remember when my grandmother died in 2019, and my grandmother was um, uh, she she retired um, in her 60s, 70s, and she was a 
high school principal of a very, um, you know, sort of yeah, an extremely well-run school in, in Jamaica. And um, she was a faithful Anglican for, you know, for, for all of her life. And I didn't know how much her, um, her legacy was uh, grounded in her faith until her funeral. Um, because so much of what she did, I discovered at the funeral. So I remember being there in the countryside in Jamaica. It was this, you know, just really beautiful sunny day um, in, in the church in, in Clarendon in the countryside. And, and there were all these women that came dressed in purple at the funeral. And there was just this, this real flood of purple dresses at the funeral. And they all spoke about her, my, my grandmother, and they, this was afterwards at the sort of the after meal, saying that, you know, she was the woman that would make sure, they, these all, sorry, I should make, sure, make clear that these women that came in purple were the ex-students of the school, actually. Oh, right. So they all came down to, to, the, um, to the funeral, as if there were hundreds of them there. And they were so impacted, and all the stories just confirmed how much my grandmother's, uh, you know, her, her values, the, the belief in you know, every child being, uh, you know, a, a child of God and gifted and, and deserving of an opportunity for, of education, regardless of their background. So she would oftentimes bring in her own lunch. She would give to another child who didn't have lunch because she didn't want the child to be hungry and not and not be able to focus in, you know, in the in the lessons. You know, she even at a time in Jamaica where where some of the poor children didn't have access to the school that she she was uh, you know principal over really advocated for wanting to be able to give um, you know the, those children an opportunity at an education and so um, just kind of understanding how her faith had hands and feet and were practical and, and and was you know very much you know such a driving force behind the influence of her life I just remembered feeling at the time, pondering that and I was at that stage when she died in 2019 my faith was just in disarray I would call I would have considered myself spiritual but not religious that was the kind of phase I was in so it's kind of gone through the hard atheism phase and I was kind of softening to the idea that maybe spirituality is just you know just be, be a kind person so I just remembered feeling this awareness of of how the, the legacy the legacy of her faith, how that informed her whole life, her mission, her work, the kind of person. And yes, there was a sense in which I just remember feeling so small and so like, you know, just gosh, how do how does one live up to to a life like this? And how does one belittle, um, you know, the faith, of this level of faithfulness that that is rooted in one's Christian faith just because, okay, and I, I, I think I've evolved a more sophisticated, non-religious spirituality where religion is this archaic set of ideas that uh, doesn't do the world that much good now, and we, we've, we've evolved and we need to move on from that. And though the, the, that was, it, it certainly it challenged me. And I will touch on what you said about sometimes when, when you have that kind of legacy I've seen it in, in a few friends of mine who've come out of Christian homes or had parents who were pastors and involved in ministry, and the pressure became too much, and they sort of end up kind of rebelling from that. And 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 I sort of thought I escaped that because most of my friends who 
say, grow up with, with you know, Christian parents or have that strong heritage, they went through the rebellious phase in their teens, you know, and early 20s, and then sort of eventually kind of grew out of that and, and, and sort of came home to the realization that actually, you know, faith, faith grounds you, keeps you, um, and, and helps you live a life uh, of meaning and purpose. But I, I, I you know, remained in, in, in the church and remained faithful and was involved in ministry right up until this, this happened. So it wasn't until my two kids were born that uh, I went through this, uh, you know, this, this faith crisis. What would you say to someone who's still kind of in this victim mentality now? Yeah. One of the things that I've tried to get right in terms of a balance when I discuss this is I think there are true victims of, uh, you know, of of, they have experienced hardships, whether that's based on, uh, you know, violence towards them, on fair treatment of, of any kind, uh, whether that's race-based or not. And, and, and that we can acknowledge that those experiences can be hard to navigate, difficult uh, emotionally to overcome. But then there comes a point where one can self-identify with, with those experiences to the point that they lose, that there is this hopelessness and there is this inability to, um, you know, to, to move forward with one's life. And, and that's, that's victimhood. And I think victimhood is what I would describe as, you know, the, the, the greatest um, obstacle or, or, or actually one of the words I liked is most toxic, um, you know, sort of obstacles to maximizing human potential. And I think recognizing that is not easy because oftentimes when you're in a place where you've, you know, you're, you're so consumed by the the idea that you are a victim, you that and that and that that sums up the entirety of your your existence and almost purpose in life. You will see every challenge, every obstacle, as as some grand conspiracy to keep you from from progressing, to keep you from flourishing. And even for someone like me who had all the, the right things, I had two parents who loved each other. My parents uh, had been married for 41 years last month, loved me, corrected me, gave me opportunity, you know, sacrificed for me. When they came to the UK, it was a massive sacrifice for them both, but they believed it was the right transition to give myself and my siblings, you know, that, that opportunity to, to, you know, to, so I, you know, I had all of that, and despite that, and even being a doctor, and then, you know, and having all of this, victimhood became this. It's almost like as if I, I took this this chalice, this bitter chalice, and 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 of, of resentment and victimhood, and nearly lost everything, you know, and lost and and certainly lost a lot. But I, my, what I would say to someone who's trapped there is you don't have to stay there. Uh, and, and part of the reason I, I've, I have these conversations and I use Twitter in, in this way to talk about these issues is that I, I'm desperate to sound that, to, to offer that message of hope to those who feel like I'm stuck in this mold, in this way of viewing the world that sees 
there's almost like there's there's no way out. It's it's this abyss of of despair, um, and that everybody's out to get me, um, and especially um, you know th this notion that you know we we are as black people, for instance, so uh, hemmed in by oppression that we aren't able to um, you know to to move forward. I, I think that. I would just my, my my hope, my prayer, my encouragement to, to them is 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 to take the first steps to you know to heal from whatever it is that you might be going through that has perhaps made you vulnerable to um, to accepting that that sort of uh, you know kind of sentence of or, or that that sort of uh, you know kind of view of the world. Um, and um, and try and engage in, in, in a journey towards the, the support that you need. I think a lot of that will be community-based. That's one of the beauties of, of, of faith, you know, and my, and my faith being able to, you know, it was so easy to kind of isolate myself and, and be on this journey on my own, but being able to be in community with other people that can help me, um, you know, to because I, I, I consider myself now someone who's, you know, in, in, in recovery. You know, it's very much like with any, when you've been addicted to anything, whether it's, you know, whether it's alcohol or cocaine, if you're addicted to this victimhood mentality, you've got to guard yourself from returning to that, you know, through, through you know, just in any, just, you know, like with anything, you, you avoid it like the plague. And I, I say this all the time, run from any ideology that gives you that, almost this permission to see yourself as this perpetual victim because you, you'll, you'll, run, you'll run to it naturally if that's been your issue. On, on that subject, I think in today's society there are a lot of disparities. Yeah. But we see things such as social media and everyone seems to be on a yacht or on mm. a private jet or something. Yeah. And I wonder what role people wanting what others have or seeing all these perfect lives on the social media, et cetera, mm -hmm. has in pushing them towards an ideology that makes them the victim. Yeah, I, I think that's that's true. Like, you know, social media, I've often heard it said, social media is not reality. And you have to remind yourself, you know, the way that social media is designed and set up, whether we're talking about the kind of algorithms or the, you know, the, the adverts that are shown to you, it's it's all curated. It's a curated reality that you, that your virtual reality that you're being uh, offered that's, you know, based on lots of different metrics and and it's it's too easy to conflate what you see uh, with 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 the truth of, of, of what the world is like. Of course, there are disparities. Uh, there are people who experience varying, um, you know, uh, you know, difficulties that, that they that they have to navigate. And if you if you see a world where it seems that everybody around you, as you said, if you know, is is living the life, and and you then feel somehow woe is me uh, but you know but the truth is oftentimes you know social media shows you the highlights rather than the backstory you know you know so even people who appear to be very successful and so on you don't necessarily know what they've done the work that they've put in or how truly successful they really are I mean you you know you can get a a, a, a video where you've maybe borrowed some jewelry borrowed some borrowed a car and you have this you, you look like you, you you're sort of walking around in all this wealth and it's just it's just props <laughs> yeah and, and, that, and that, that does happen a lot as well I 
so, so I think just being grounded, and I think it's actually important to to take time away from social media. I say this is someone who uses social media a lot. I think you know, um, have have a. It's important to just be grounded in in um in the real world and not be too sort of sort of absorbed in the kind of uh, the, the false uh, curated um, world that, that social media and allowing that to to you know sort of mess with your mind in terms of as you said you know seeing yourself somehow as 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 this kind of the victim based on the fact that you have this um, this very limited view. Of, of the of the world for sure. In America, uh, recently we've seen a, a lot of media focus on affirmative action, yeah. and the Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to get your take on this. Yeah. So, I believe, for instance, in the context of America, where you had a, a history of, of course, you know that we understand there was the context of slavery, uh, you know, then sort of abolition. And then, even after that, there was a um, you know Black Americans. There was a history of of other forms of of discrimination, where despite the fact that the law permitted, uh, you know, for instance, Black Americans to be able to go to university, college, and so on, there there were significant amounts of um, in, in parts of America where th where this was not being uh, in, in principle I mean while in principle it, it should have been that they had no issues and, and no obstruction or disadvantage where that was uh, not the case and 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 I think affirmative action for me as, a, as an idea to remedy uh, those um, you know those issues at the at the time. I think was the, the the idea behind it of saying, okay, you know what, we are going to take into account that you know this this group of, of people have institutionally, yeah, certainly at that time, not been given opportunities where they have the uh, academic ability, um, but they were refused. There were letters where people were refused, despite the fact that they had the potential, they were apt to be able to do it. And I think that means the the means to uh, to rectify that at the time um, was was uh, was well intended and, and, and needful. And there's some some may have debate and discussion in terms of the way that affirmative action um, you know should work. Because I think in terms of I think a lot of people sometimes when they think about okay, well, what is is are we saying we're lowering the standards, for instance, uh, in terms of academically for one group to be able to get in. Um, and for me, because like, for instance, if I think about medical school, I, I got into medical school, um, you know, and I, I can't, I'd only been in the, in the UK for a year when I applied to, to medical school here in the UK, obviously it's a different context. But I academically was, you know, predicted, you know, very high grades in my, in my A-levels and, uh, and, and did well and got in on, on merit, or, you know, purely on my academic performance. Now, um, I, I feel that their medical school is, is tough. It's not an easy road to get through. If you're going to let people into uh, to university and not give and not and for instance lower the academic standards and then and then you're, you're in a sense you could argue could you be setting them up to fail if they don't have the aptitude to actually in, endure that so i think it's it shouldn't just be about lowering 
um, you know, academic standards. And I don't think that that's wise or helpful. It's about, okay, if you're trying to say we, we, we want to recognize that this particular, in the, in the context of America, where you had students who were black and had aptitude and were saying, you can't come here because of your race. And, uh, and affirmative action being used to, uh, to, you know, to rectify that issue, I think that that's different. Now, I think in a, where we are now in the world today, in America, um, I would say it's the same. I, I, I would agree that affirmative action as, as this notion, I think, I think now, I feel like it, it's not as necessary as it was when it was first brought in. That's my view. Uh, it's purely on a, on a race, on, on just, just purely on racial grounds. Um, and, and therefore, I think for me, I, I would say that, you know, we should have equality where, um, you know, that um, people should have, be able to, you know, I, think, I do think a merit-based system is more, um, is more appropriate in, in the world that we live in now. Um, and that's and that's and that's you know as I said so that's the nuanced view that I have and I appreciate that there are going to be people who will you know have slightly different views on this as well. If people want to follow you and find out more, where can they go? So the best place at the moment would be Twitter. So you can find me on Twitter at Joel Brown MD, um, and that's yeah that would be the best place to find me. And I'm always looking forward to have discussion. Um, you know. So find me on there, and I'm even willing to jump on spaces with someone who wants to maybe thrash out and, and uh, challenge some of my ideas. I'm, I'm open to that. I think that's what we need more of in society. Joel Brown, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. You're very welcome.